in the rise of AI as a tool for us to advance as a civilization, we have to stop and ask ourselves the question of, to what end are we using this means? And is the means to automate the mundane? Is it to automate things that human beings don't love doing, but that are necessary and that they can be compensated for? But isn't it funny that the first thing that happened was our art forms started to become automated through AI technology. And that's something that I have a beef with personally. There was this story that came out where the likeness of James Dean was going to be used in an uh, Air Force movie. He was gonna play a war pilot. And the, the estate of James Dean signed on, right? Okay, we'll do this. We'll use our family member's likeness to star in this movie. They said, James Dean's gonna be the lead in this film. Thank God it got canceled. However, a buddy of mine said something that was apt and I think appropriate for this day and age. He said, you can replicate the pores on the man's face. You can get his voice just so. CGI can make it seem like it really is him. But what you'll never ever replicate is James Dean's choices because that came from the man himself. Welcome to In The Moment. My name is Adam Lauder. I am the host of this podcast, In The Moment, an Anytown podcast. Today's episode two, the rise of AI and the death of the actor. How has AI and the deprioritization of acting training affected the art form of acting? I'm gonna break down the history of acting. I'm also gonna go through the current climate and how these new advancements and developments in technology have really taken away the incentive for artists to thrive, to become excellent in what they do. Namely, of course, acting. This is In The Moment, an Anytown podcast, all about the art of acting, revitalizing the art of acting one episode at a time. Thank you guys so much for joining along. I'm gonna jump right into it. The art of acting is on life support. As content continues to rise, what we find is the content or the criteria that makes art excellent has become less and less important to the artist and to the public, at least from what we can see, right? Right now we're in an era where studio heads are very risk averse. And I don't know about you guys, but when it comes to art, when it comes to creativity, risk is a necessity. In an era with AI and where technology is on the rise, where does that leave art? I think we're already seeing right now, me speaking from the actor's perspective, I've been in sag after since 2012, and we're on the verge of a strike ourselves while we're in the midst of a strike with the Writers Guild, obviously. Warring with the studios, trying to get a percentage that a lot of artists, a lot of writers don't think is too much, while studios and streamers see such a, an insane profit. They are now in this position where I don't think the incentive for them to change or listen to these writers' demands is very high. And we're gonna dive into all of that. But, but we have to look at the climate today, ask the question, well, what is the future of art, namely acting, especially in a podcast like this one? And where are we headed? But before we see where we're headed, we have to look at where we came from. So I'm gonna take you guys through a brief history of the art of acting, at least in America. But before we get to America, obviously, we have to talk about Konstantin Stanislavski and the Moscow Art Theater. Briefly, I won't get into too much detail on this. Konstantin Stanislavski was an actor, director, 
theorist and teacher in Russia, the Moscow Art Theater, he developed a new form of acting that was grounded in realism right around the time Anton Chekhov was starting to write plays. Anton Chekhov, one of the greatest dramatists of all time, but was in Russia as well. And in order to stage the plays that Chekhov was wanting to stage, a new form and a new style of acting was needed. They did a tour of shows in America, in New York City namely, where a lot of future names in acting that resonate on such a level now were, were living and working at the time. And when Stanislavski and his company were touring their shows, there were some actors that caught a glimpse of this new acting style and they said, what is this? And they wanted to know all about it. So they started to meet with him. They started asking questions, pick his brain. And this became the beginning musings of an idea pioneered by Harold Klerman, Cheryl Crawford, and Lee Strasberg, known as this 10-year run of the group theater. The group theater is extremely popular. You can look them up all over the internet. You're going to find a lot of information, but really it's the inception of the art of acting here in America that brings it to a new level, codifies and simplifies the artistic approach to acting in a way that is grounded in reality so that the actor's performance can resonate on a truthful level with the audience members. And when this triumvirate of Clerman, Crawford, and Strasberg got together and they wanted to start this theater company, they rounded up a lot of actors that they knew, some actors that wanted to work with them, and they took them to the countryside outside of the city and they worked tirelessly for the summer. These were dedicated artists that famously said they had to take a vow of poverty in order to pursue the art of acting nowadays. Obviously that's not true, although the vast majority of actors do not make a living acting. Out of this group theater are some names that are pretty important and influential to the art of acting as we know it. And those names are Sanford Meisner, Stella Adler, Robert Lewis, Clifford Odette, Elia Kazan, Harold Klarman, of course, Morris Karnofsky, Franco Tone. There's a, there's a lot of people, but Kazan, Strasberg, Crawford, Klerman, Adler, those five really started to pioneer something new that was happening in the, in the industry of Hollywood that they didn't anticipate because they were focused on theater. They were focused on with Clifford Odette's, the resident playwright, on putting up shows that at the time told the truth to the culture, to the audience. Keep in mind, this was the Great Depression. There was a play called Waiting for Lefty that Clifford Odette wrote that starred a lot of these actors that went on to be writers, directors, teachers, etc., of of the art of acting. In this play, Waiting for Lefty, there was a revolutionary moment that took place because it centered around a union strike. Taxicab union is on strike in the Great Depression. A lot of these people that are working for the taxicab union, they had former lives in the 20s when things were a little bit different. But the play, although centered around this taxicab strike, is surrounded by vignettes of scenes that give you snapshots into the drama of each of these characters' lives. And at the end, there's a call to strike by the union. And the company of actors gets up and they say, strike, strike, strike. And what happened in the audience was that everyone was infected by the feeling and the truth of the moment because of what they were also going through. They knew this dilemma inside and out because they were the characters in the play. That's how truthful it was written. And that's how tapped into the culture this play was, the audience rose on their feet and they called for a strike. And the entire room was resonating and booming with a collective strike, not only from the actors, but also from the audience. 
This was the subject of The Fervent Years, written by Harold Clerman. You can see behind me Harold Clerman's collected works. All, all of his works are in that book, but The Fervent Years is, is a book that chronicles this entire history. So I highly encourage you guys to read this. If the history of acting is important to you and if American acting history means anything to you, go pick up The Fervent Years and read it for yourself. But this leads to, ultimately, the group theater disbands. They fall apart and all good things must come to an end. And what that does is it diverts a few of these members into their own careers. Sanford Meisner didn't really act anymore, but he decided to go into teaching. Ilya Kazan with Lee Strasberg and Cheryl Crawford decided to open up the Actors Studio, out of which came names like Marilyn Monroe, James Dean, Marlon Brando, Paul Newman, Joanne Woodward, and, and countless others. And Stella Adler became one of the most prominent teachers of acting that this country has ever seen. And I wanna talk about some of their students. Sanford Meisner taught thousands of actors over the course of his 60 years of teaching or so. Namely, Robert Duvall, Diane Keaton, Gregory Peck, Mary Steenburgen, Steve McQueen, David Mamet, Sidney Pollack, and many, many, many more. Lee Strasberg was responsible for teaching many actors, namely Al Pacino, Ellen Burstyn, and Stella Adler was responsible for teaching Marlon Brando, Robert De Niro, and Mark Ruffalo, to name a few. I say the names of the students because I think if you are listening to this podcast and you don't know the history of acting, maybe that's a point of connection for you. Where do people like Brando, De Niro, Duvall, Diane Keaton, Ellen Burstyn, where do they learn how to act? Where they make these overwhelmingly powerful choices that bring to life the dilemmas that the, the playwright or the screenwriter puts on the page that last a lifetime, that are timeless, truly, that move you, that change you. They're coming out of this school of thought that acting is an art form and a skill set that you can train yourself to do with excellence. If you're looking at this era of the 30s, 40s, and 50s, because of a healthy competition, because of a devotion and a dedication to excellence, that's what was competing at the box office. That's what was telling you whether or not something was successful. In a world of business, you have to look at the numbers and you have to say, is this working, is this not working? Of course, critics at that time definitely had more of a say-so, but you're, you're looking at what is the culture saying, what are the people saying, and what is the box office saying? And what you would find is it was an immense emphasis on incentivizing excellence. If a show was bad, writing was bad, acting was bad, directing was bad, it closed. If a show was great, you told your friends about it. Have you seen it? Have you seen it? Theater in this, in this day and age was so much easier to produce and fund and execute and for the audience to afford. It was much easier. Nowadays, one could make the argument that Broadway is nothing but a celebrity sighting experience that you pay incredibly high prices to see one of the celebrities that you've seen from TV. The irony is that because actors knew that you had to take a vow of poverty to be an actor, there was no riches in it. They were dedicated to acting because they loved the art of acting. It wasn't necessarily because they were gonna be a millionaire like today. I teach acting and I run Anytown Actors Lab TikTok. If you haven't checked it out, obviously follow. I, I share acting tips and acting insights every week on there. But I talk to actors every single day. I train actors in person. I train actors online via Zoom one-on-one. -on -one. 
And I talk to actors all the time through my lives and through videos like this and comments and, and the exchange of this engaging and growing community. And I hear, I hear from a lot of actors a lot that they just want that agent and they want to get to that, that high level where they can make a lot of money as an actor. And the truth of the matter is, that's no reason to go into anything. Of course, we all have to make a living and responsibilities are necessary. So it's hard not to focus on money. But when you think back, close your eyes and really reflect on the first time a story hit you, when you saw a character or a moment or an emotion that moved you, changed you, or made you feel less alone, you weren't thinking about dollars and cents. You were thinking about the heart and soul. Stella Adler, one of the actors in the group theater and one of the best teachers of, of American acting that we've seen, her quote was, life beats you down and crushes your soul on a daily basis, but good art Good acting reminds you that you have one. In the rise of AI as a tool for us to advance as a civilization, we have to stop and ask ourselves the question of, to what end are we using this means? And is the means to automate the mundane? Is it to automate things that human beings don't love doing, but that are necessary and that they can be compensated for but isn't it funny that the first thing that happened was our art forms started to become automated through AI technology. And that's something that I have a beef with personally. There was this story that came out back in 2016 where the likeness of James Dean was going to be used in an uh, Air Force movie who's gonna play a war pilot. And the, the estate of James Dean signed on, right? Okay, we'll do this, we'll use our family member's likeness to star in this movie. They said, James Dean's gonna be the lead in this film. And this was a film that was gonna come out in 2018, right? The announcement was made through Deadline and various articles in 2016. And this was something that we thought was coming. Thank God it got canceled. However, a buddy of mine said something that was apt and I think appropriate for this day and age. He said, you can replicate the pores on the man's face. You can get his voice just so. CGI can make it seem like it really is him. But what you'll never ever replicate is James Dean's choices because that came from the man himself. What makes art art is the fact that it's coming from and created by a human being, right? AI can make art all they want so long as the audience is a group of robots. But we know and companies know and the people making these decisions know they want consumers like you and me, people with flesh and blood and a heartbeat and a soul and emotions, feelings, thoughts, opinions, and values to be buying tickets and to be clicking rent or buy when they want to watch a piece of entertainment or take in a story at night or go to the theater. Human beings are buying these tickets. Human beings are sitting in front and giving their precious time and their hard-earned money to these companies that are looking at you saying, yeah, we could fake it, right? Faking it to me is not what acting is. A lot of people have this misconception that acting is pretending. And I see where you're coming from, but that's not the definition of acting that I follow. I've been acting for over 15 years professionally for 13, 11 of which were spent in New York City, four years of which were spent training, two of which were in the Meisner technique, trained by descendants of Sanford Meisner himself. What is the definition of acting according to Sanford Meisner who came out of this group theater? It was living truthfully under imaginary circumstances. The pretend comes in 
when we get over to the imaginary. He said the most important ingredient for an actor is a childlike imagination. I agree with those things. But I think the thing to focus on here is living truthfully, right? Living truthfully. Jim Carrey said something very interesting where he said, art is an outer molding of your inner life, right? Well, crack open the inside of a motherboard or a chip within some sort of AI or robot computer and see if you are resonating with the contents on the inside as a person with a spirit, as a person with a soul and a heart. I don't think you'll recognize it because it's not natural. Humankind, that's the art that I care about. Do I think AI is evil? No. Everyone's rebuttal for any sort of negativity around AI is it's a tool. I know that. It's a tool. But we have to ask ourselves, what are we building before we start to automate humanity? What are we trying to build? That gives you a bit of a foundation for the art of acting in America in its history. Very brief. The next thing I've, I've discussed here is the rise of AI, right? How does this affect the arts? I want to talk about something that doesn't necessarily have to do with AI, but has a lot to do with a dwindling emphasis on excellence. I talk to a lot of people, not just actors, not just filmmakers or playwrights, people in the theater, but people, just people, anyone that's not necessarily involved in this industry. And I ask them, what do you watch? What do you like to watch? And of course the answers are varied, but what I have found in my own research is there's an overwhelming consensus that there's not much to watch when all numbers show that there's never been more stories and content created. So how can it be that the quantity has gone up so much, but the quality has dwindled so much? And I think we get over to streaming services. And the answer is the fact that the people running these streaming services are looking for a business that has very little risk. Because when you're making an investment, who wants to risk a lot? You're always looking for the odds, right? What's the odds on getting an ROI, return on investment? Well, hopefully they're pretty high. You know, the cost of this risk shouldn't be super high, but I don't think that that bodes well for art because being risk averse creates things that are mundane, things that are carbon copies of the things of last year and studio heads looking at how can we turn art into a formula? And if you've ever tried to study an art form, develop a skill set in becoming an artist and try to make outer moldings of your inner life in whatever form that takes, I think you can understand that art is not a formula. Art and science and math are different for a reason. It's because they deal with the human heart. And that's something that's really hard to measure with numbers. You cannot measure my experience with numbers. You cannot encapsulate my feelings with a spreadsheet or a formula. It doesn't work. And this is why art, when controlled and operated through the publishing rights of major conglomerates and studios that are really down to two or three people through this veil of supposed competition, which of course is completely fabricated. There's really only a handful of companies running these streaming platforms. What do we find? We find that studios have become really smart in gaining a lot of money, but what are they losing? They're losing the soul of the art. They're losing the spirit of humanity. 
because a person is going to discern whether or not the interests that they have, which again, are very hard to encapsulate with numbers or words alone, to find what they want to watch. And me personally, I watch things that are much older now, things that were made in the 70s typically, when the industry was a complete 180 of what it is today. I want to walk you through the New Hollywood era. The New Hollywood era was a period between 1968 and 1981 in the film industry, inspired by the French New Wave, where Truffaut and Godard were taking extreme risks with the camera, with the art form, and pushing boundaries and trying things new. And so the artists were doing that over here. And with a little film called Easy Rider, a studio rocketed into the moon and essentially became an unexpected success where people were lining up around the block at theaters when this film came out because it was, it was seen as a countercultural film. The tired studio system was no longer meeting the needs of the hearts of Americans. And so they saw Easy Rider and they said, this is speaking to me. And that's what created this new Hollywood era. If you have watched any movies from the 70s, I think what you'll find is there's a raw, real, truthful, taking chances kind of spirit and attitude with which these filmmakers are going about making something. And so I find that if you throw a dart in the 70s, you typically will hit a movie worth watching. Does it mean that there are not outliers and uh, exceptions to the rule? Of course, there's some bad ones out there for sure, but I think it's the inverse. Nowadays, you get a few movies that are pretty good, but a broken clock is right twice a day. The system isn't working. So when you simplify that era, you say, well, it's risk aversion. Studios are afraid of risk, right? But they found a way to make billions monthly, retain all the publishing, all the rights of all of the content, and do remakes and sequels that will, even if you hate them, at least give you a craving for the old one, right? If you watch a remake of something and it doesn't quite hit the way that the old one did, well, you're in luck. Don't cancel your subscription. Just watch what we were doing back in the day when we really cared about art. And so these companies don't take a, a big hit. I think these companies are more annoyed at the writer's strike than they are hurting financially from it. And I think the death of merit and excellence in this country when it comes to art and when it comes to the storytelling industry particularly has actually created a sterile environment for writers to thrive. And so you have this incredibly tragic situation where the writers are striking and the studios are saying, well, let's, let's hold off. Let's see, what if AI could write a script? Well, they've created an environment where the writing could have been written by AI because it's so mediocre. And a lot of times that's being generous. The writing quality has gone down the acting quality has gone down. The film quality has gone down. And what has gone up? Money, technology, advancements, convenience, and access through the internet. When I look around, I see people. I talk to people and I see a demand, a desire for things to change. And so what, what are you going to do about it? These companies are incredibly powerful. These companies are incredibly rich. They may not even be blinking at this strike, they may not even be blinking at your demand because their pockets are continuing to fill up month after month, year after year. They become richer than they were before.
they have found a formula for success when it comes to economics, when it comes to finances. They have formulized art. So my question to you is, are you an actor? And if you are, which team do you want to play for? Do you want to play for the AI team? Do you want to play for the automated team? Do you want to just get the money, right? Or do you want to, like the theater actors and the group theater, say, I'd like to take a vow of poverty in terms of principle for my art form? Now, does that mean you won't be paid? No. No, because I do think there is a market for excellence when it comes to acting, when it comes to storytelling. But my question and my challenge to you is, what are you willing to sacrifice to obtain and maintain your excellence as an artist so that you can move people, challenge people, make them feel less alone when it comes to your art, when it comes to what you're leaving out there, the outer molding of your inner life, the heartbeat. Sanford Meisner said, all great art comes from the heart. He said, the root of your acting is the truth of yourselves. Be an artist, dig deep, go the extra mile, be in the world, but don't be of the world. That's what stands the test of time. When you dive into these truthful principles of life, you will find that they don't expire. They stand the test of time. It's why poetry and books and music that were made years ago are still being read by human beings today. It's why adaptations and remakes are being made because there was some merit and some value to the original concept and idea that was rooted in the human heart. This is In The Moment, an Anytown podcast. My name is Adam Lauder. Let's revitalize the art of acting one episode at a time. Thank you guys for listening, and I'll see you on the next one.